Well, hello and welcome to episode 31 of The Money Talks. And today we've got a very special episode. I think we're doing this for the first time. We actually have our first cross-border entrepreneur on the show. We've got Shelly Sixena of Seva Mob and who's joining us from Georgia. Uh, hey, Shelly, how are you? Hi, Narut. Thanks for having me on the show. This is uh, um, this is good morning to you right now, or is it? I would imagine very early morning for you. Um, it's almost noon time here, eleven thirty a.m. Oh, eleven thirty. Okay, I've got. I think I've got my math, uh, my uh, time zones incorrect. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. I know it, it's uh, you know we've had difficulty just just coordinating on the time simply because of the of the time zones and the fact that you're so busy. But in, considering you're running a a venture in India, I would imagine you get very little sleep at what people would call normal times. <laughs> no, it works out well because I get up early in the morning. That way, I'm able to catch uh, catch most of the people in India, and uh, that way, I'm also able to start my day quite early. So Great. So, what we're going to do today is, Shelly, hopefully, take you. To, you know, hope because uh, you've got a very interesting journey. You know, IIT Roorkee, Cornell, IBM, then SaaS Mob, and then Seva Mob, and and your funding journey over here, uh, and how you're running this business. So, I know there's a lot of content for me to cover. Hopefully, I'll be able to get through all of it. Uh, but what we're going to do now is we'll, I'd like to really uh, talk to you a little bit about your your journey with Seva Mob. You know what do you, what does Seva Mob Mob do, and then we can get into you uh, get into uh, the story behind why Seva Mob was started. So maybe for the audience, you know what does Seva Mob do? Uh, sure. So Seva Mob is a U.S.-based company with a subsidiary in India. We also have franchises in Southern Africa, and we provide an AI-enabled primary healthcare platform to organizations. The platform has two components. One is AI-based uh, triage and point-of-care screening for blood, vision, urine, diet, and sputum. And the second is health outcome delivery via telehealth and asset-like pop-up clinics. And by integrating these two components, we're able to um, enable delivery of uh, primary care at up to 50% lower cost. For us, it's a B2B model. Our customers are employers, NGOs, hospitals, health insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, and local government agencies. And currently, we are serving more than 100 uh, B2B customers in 15 plus states of India and uh, one state of the US. And we've also done pilots in South Africa with customers like Nelson Mandela Children's Fund, uh, Barclays, CSR, and so on. Very interesting. And uh, like I said, I don't want to get, get into too much detail into that right now, because we're going to do that a little bit later. Uh, during our during our conversation, but Shelly, you you are obviously you you weren't born in the U.S. You were you grew up in Lucknow, and uh, uh, and and from there you you know you, but did you always want to be an entrepreneur? I mean, you Lucknow is is probably not known for entrepreneurship as much as uh, other towns of India. Yeah, my schooling is from Lucknow. Then I did my bachelor's from IIT Roorkee in uh, electronics and communication, and. Uh, after that, I worked at IBM uh, for one year in product development, and then I did uh, uh, MBA from Cornell, and uh, then I did uh, product management channels and go-to-market work at IBM. So uh, the way I stumbled into entrepreneurship was that uh, IBM had a very buttoned-up culture, and there were lots of ideas buzzing in the head, uh, which I could not implement fast enough uh, with the bureaucracy at IBM. Um, uh, so that's how I co-founded my first company, SaaS Mob. Um, where uh, we could like do something with uh, cloud-based mobile uh, platform technology, uh, which I initially tried to attempt at IBM, but uh, because of the uh, all of the like you know, paperwork there, it could not happen. <laughs> um, and so we were able to secure a number of customers, um, and that business has been profitable for a while now. And I'm an advisory role over uh, over uh, there now. But uh, that was the initial impetus. Just too many ideas buzzing in the head. Um, and no outlet for those ideas at IBM. But you were at IBM for ten years, I believe. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and Almost. what was the what was that experience like? Like you know, I, IBM obviously was a bellwether at one point of of the tech world, and a lot of companies have actually come out of IBM, right? And uh, a lot of founders have come out of IBM. Um, <clears throat> and of of course, I mean, uh, starting out as a product manager over there, I, I think that there what was the what what was the DNA that you took away from from working at IBM and probably applied that to your current current role? Uh, so I had great experience at IBM overall in terms of learning. Um, fresh out of rookie, I had very little practical skills. Like there was a lot of uh, theoretical mm -hmm. knowledge I had, right? Uh, so I, one of the advantages of working at IBM was uh, I was working with different product groups uh, for like two or three years in uh, product development. 
And so that broadened my technical skill set and gave me um, some background. Uh, I started with Lotus Notes uh, very early on and then uh, did a bunch of stuff in Eclipse, like in a group, uh, then with their uh, portal uh, software and mobile software. So that gave me a very pretty broad skill set. And the reason I came back to IBM is because they were uh, processing my green card. Um, and so, sure. um, I, so I, I did a fast track program at Cornell. Um, and after that, uh, again, IBM gave me the opportunity to do product development, uh, product management uh, channels and go to market work. So um, I would say that I credit uh, my business experience and my uh, technical experience totally to IBM. Um, and because they have so many different product groups, uh, I was able to broaden uh, my skill set quite a bit uh, from there. Uh, the downside of the experience at IBM was that, uh, again, um, um, it's, it's a lot of bureaucracy. Um, and so mm -hmm. as uh, if, say, you have a number of ideas and you want to get them implemented fast, it would take you a while to like you know, get somewhere. Um, so that was mm -hmm. the downside. But the upside was... Uh, why is that, though? Why, why is it that? I mean, I've noticed this about most companies as they get bigger. The speed of innovation keeps on coming down. Uh, that's just because there are so many different gating factors before um, an idea gets to the product stage and is actually used by the customers. Um, and uh, all each gate uh, point has uh, its own time uh, milestones and cycles and so on, so which extends the whole like you no know, process. And then there are too many cooks in the kitchen, um, so that's another like you no know, thing. Um, the people like if they're more experienced than you, uh, then obviously they get the first say at how things should like you not know, done, um, even if uh, you are supporting your stuff with proper analysis and everything. And so I would say that's probably the main reason why at large corporates innovation takes its own time but Shelly, it's very interesting that um, you know you decided to go to ibm obviously in a way because of your green card you, you like, like you mentioned you probably had to but um <clears throat> it's a very interesting question because we've had a lot of guests that either after they uh, graduated you know joined joined like a an established brand like like a uh, like an hul or or a eny or even in your case ibm and some people that went directly went into entrepreneurship, right? But if you had to do it again, and let's imagine that the green card was not, not, not really the issue, would you actually want to work at an IBM for a couple of years before starting out as an entrepreneur? Or would you want to go straight away start up as an entrepreneur? Uh, that's a great question. I would say that I missed out on the tech boom uh, in 2000, uh, around 1999, uh, 2000, uh, because of uh, this fixation with working for a big brand. Um, and then uh, once the green card processing started, that further like you know, led to a delay of um, what I could have done faster. But at the same time, mm. I would say that uh, definitely experience uh, in a corporate, experience with customers, experience with technology, that what makes you a successful entrepreneur, right? So um, it's a um, it's a, there are pros and cons of like doing it too fast and like you know, waiting for a while and like you know, doing it then. Um, I would say I probably delayed it a little because of wind card. I should have done it a little bit earlier, uh, but I definitely uh, loved like you know my initial work at IBM. Yeah, I mean, I also believe that uh, when we are evaluating uh, startups, I think founders have had a couple of years in a corporate. Again, not not a lot, but let's say they've had a few years in a corporate. I've always felt that they're they're a little more settled because they understand process, right? They understand the results are not going to come from magic they're going to come from process and that because because they've been part of such processes at a larger company they have a tendency to create processes i think that's uh, at least at least my observation over the uh, that's absolutely right Anurud. so uh, for me also with that experience at ibm while there was a lot of bureaucracy there it did give me that insight as to set up like processes in my own company right which mm -hmm. if I, I was fresh out of college and starting i would not have that experience the second Correct. thing is, uh, since in both my businesses, uh, it was a B2B like no model. Um, in a B2B model, especially if you're pitching to bigger customers, uh, larger corporates, uh, you have to have that understanding of the sales cycle. You have to understand like, you know, who to pitch it to, how to progress that sales cycle, how to like make, uh, how to understand the pain point, how to talk in their language, right? If you're fresh out of way true. have that experience. Very true. Yeah. Hmm. And, and then what was the trigger that you decided, you know, what like, when you were when you were done with IBM after ten years, uh, what was the trigger that that made you want to now start SaaS Mob? So I found some uh, good co-founders uh, who wanted to do something uh, uh, big um, separately from their jobs, and at the same time, as I mentioned, there was a bunch of things I want to do at IBM um, as part of the mobile uh, portfolio that I was uh, managing there. 
Um, and I could not implement those things at IBM. So I decided to then uh, take my ideas and then implement them myself. Uh, and it was a good learning experience. It took me a while because uh, until that point, uh, while I had the experience at IBM, I did not have the experience of running a PNL uh, as a separate like no business and so on. Uh, so there were, a bunch, especially as a smaller like no brand, it was very easy to get on a customer's calendar with IBM, uh, but it was a lot more harder like not to get on uh, say a potential uh, client's calendar uh, without that brand name behind you. Um, and so that was a good learning experience, I would say. It, so it took us a while, uh, but all of those lessons worked out pretty nicely for us uh, when I founded uh, SaverMob. And and SaaSmob was bootstrapped, I believe. It was. It was bootstrapped, yes. And uh, we Four pretty years. much uh, did everything from customer revenue uh, from the beginning. Very interesting. And then what what was, I guess, the uh, the biggest takeaway from the whole SaaSmob journey that I think, uh, or rather the trigger that would have taken you from SaaSmob into SaverMob? So, the first takeaway from uh, SaaSmob was that uh, at that time I was very enamored by technology. Um, mm. And uh, it was technology looking for a solution uh, or looking for a customer pain point, right? Uh, we did hit on the right like no pain points and we did like solve a bunch of problems, but it took us a while to get from um, a cool technology to a cool, like, you know, uh, to a actually usable, uh, payable solution, right? Uh, uh, when we were at SaverMob, from day one, we hit the ground running. Uh, we knew what the pain point was. We were able to like uh, pitch uh, a solution for that pain point. And so I would say that was the big takeaway from SaaSmob that translated into SaverMob. The initial impetus for SaverMob was that uh, was an uh, issue with my mom where she was incorrectly diagnosed and almost lost her life because of hepatitis C. Oh, wow. And this happened in Lucknow. So the thinking was that if this could happen in a tier two town, uh, which had good, um, pretty good medical services. Uh, what about tier three and rural? And so we started a primary healthcare service on a B2C model um, in two towns near Lucknow, uh, Kakoli and Maliabad, which are in the mango belt. Um, and mm -hmm. very quickly we realized in the first year that a B2C model would not scale, um, especially in that setting where the, pay, the payers had a limited uh, paying capacity. Uh, mm -hmm. We had hit the right pain point. We had the right solution, uh, but where we went wrong was uh, the business model of whether to do B2C or B2B. Um, and so within a year, we switched to a B2B model and that's what uh, scaled for us. Um, so uh, initially we were doing a general health service um, on a B2B model for employers. And very quickly we realized that it was easier uh, to charge the customers more if we did more specialized services and more uh, treatments and procedures rather than just like, you know, uh, consults um, and prescriptions. And so over uh, time, we added services for uh, vision and dental and nutrition and cardiometabolic and infectious disease, cancer, ENT, and more. Um, and each one of wow, those- That's almost like a pop-up clinic. Absolutely. So it was a pop-up clinic at that time. And uh, uh, we were able to increase our average revenue per like, you know, patient um, by using this approach of instead of a general health service to a, a specialized service uh, with uh, both not just a consult and a screening, but also with a treatment option. So for example, in case of vision, we were doing uh, prescription glasses and eye drops along with other stuff and then referring patients for uh, surgery, cataract surgery or so on. In case of let's say dental, we're doing on-site scaling and caries removal and filling. Um, in case of let's say ENT, we're doing on-site consults and a screening plus uh, fitting the patients with hearing aids. So that treatment element of it like uh, 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 made all, all the difference to the model. Uh, then what we realized was that uh, uh, our, our customers sort of led us to the next like you know, milestone where they said, okay, your pop-up clinics are good, but we need something between the pop-up clinic visits because the pop-up clinics could not be there every single day, uh, day in and day out. So we switched, uh, we also added telehealth infrastructure back in 2017, 18. And uh, in telehealth, we added uh, two options, um, three options. One was just phone-based advice um, because a lot of customers we serve in underserved rural, uh, they cannot really do video or like no web or things like that. And then also second opinions and video consults as part of the platform. Um, and then around a year and a half to two years ago, uh, there was a big learning experience for us that um, there were num around 15% of our consults are in uh, malnutrition. Because as you might be aware that in underserved populations, roughly 40% of the women are malnourished in India, whether low BMI or like anemia or like, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so 15% of our consults were nutrition related, but uh, uh, it was very hard to find dietitians, especially standard like, you know, dietitians uh, who could serve like, you know, um, not, not just in urban and rural. And when we could find dietitians, uh, the cost of the dietitians was pretty high. So we developed our first like module, uh, Diet AI, 
which could be used by a nurse uh, or a health worker. And we did this with uh, uh, um, um, this went hand in hand with supplements and uh, behavioral counseling and telehealth like you know, capabilities. So that was our like you no know, first solution. We did a study with Medtronic in three states of India. Our anchor tenants in that study were Vedanta in Jharkhand, um, uh, SOS Children's Village in uh, uh, in uh, uh, Delhi NCR, and Fullerton in Rajasthan. And in that study, in a one-year study, we were able to improve uh, uh, malnutrition and uh, BMI for 13% of the adult population in one year uh, time period. And the diet AI was 96% accurate uh, when it was uh, evaluated by a panel of dietitians. So that was the wow. initial impetus. Um, and we were able to reduce the cost 67% by using a nurse uh, with our diet AI instead of using a dietitian. So we saw the results there. Then we applied the next like you know, module, uh, which was uh, blood AI. Uh, the initial impetus for that was uh, RFP from government of Maharashtra, uh, where um, this was point of care diagnostics for primary healthcare centers. But the turnaround time requirement for things like RBC counts and WBC counts was two hours. Now, if you are familiar with that, uh, which I'm sure you are, uh, Anirudh, that uh, every single primary healthcare center, you cannot take a sample from there, go to a lab and bring it, uh, do the results in two hours and turnaround time. It's just not possible. It's not possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in that case, we uh, decided to use AI. We developed a module which could do RBC and WBC counts at point of care in a low resource setting. And so that's how we got into uh, uh, blood AI. And then over time, we added support for uh, uh, screening for RN deficiency anemia because that's sort of tied with our diet AI also. Uh, right. Uh, the next thing for us was vision AI. Uh, so roughly 20% of our consoles are in vision. And uh, again, there the ophthalmologists are pretty expensive to like deploy in the last mile uh, setting. It can easily cost you 3,000 to 4,000 rupees per day um, per ophthalmologist. Um, and so uh, we, de uh, we developed a vision AI which could screen for diabetic neuropathy and cataract, can be used by a technician, uh, does not require an ophthalmologist. And obviously the recommendations of the AI are then acted upon by the specialist, right? Um, <clears throat> then uh, the, you are familiar with the government mission in India of uh, 2025 TB eradication, right? Yeah. So, but the biggest pain point in TB is a good screening uh, solution. So the current uh, technology, the molecular like you no know, DNA testing, um, that is very good for confirmatory. But the pricing of that is around 600 to 800 rupees per test or even more in several like, you know, areas. So you cannot really deploy it large scale uh, for screening. Now, the government of India protocol is that Anytime a patient shows up in a primary healthcare center with more than two weeks of cough, um, then they have to do the sputum test. Uh, now, just to explain to you how, like, you know, um, I would say uh, complicated that is, um, the technician has to manually take the sample, uh, put it on a slide, stain and dry uh, that, like, you no know, slide, then look at it under simple microscope, analyze 100 different fields of that slide in order to rule out whether the patient is, like, you know, not. Uh, does not have to wear closes, right? There are so wow. many uh, points where uh, error can happen in this process. So we developed a solution which could automate this entire process, right from the point of like actually staining it uh, to the point of actually analyzing it, and then having that analysis further acted upon by a remote like you know physician. Uh, so uh, so that's how one customer after another led us to like you know these different uh, modules, and uh, that's where we are today. But it's it's very interesting, Shadi. I mean, there's a so there's just so many uh, different products you could say you've developed so many different services, and you're doing them all at the same time, right? How, how do you allocate what should like how, first of all, how do you decide what are the first five or six specialty services I'm going to have in my multi-specialty clinic? How uh, how did you decide that? So we were lucky to have some very good customers, and I think that was a lesson from SaaS Mob. And that SaaS Mob, we first developed the solutions. And then we tried to find mm -hmm. a customer. Here we had ready-made customers, a good pipeline, and the customer said, "Like, no, we need this." And then we like tried to like you know uh, uh, build that right and deploy that. Uh, so that's I would say the biggest difference between the two companies, and uh, uh, that's what's helped us like you know do the stuff so quickly. And where for each module we have a pretty good like you know, solid pipeline. Uh, but I would say it's not like we are doing ten different products. We have a single product, which is AI-based uh, primary healthcare platform. Now, certain customers are only interested in um, that last mile uh, health outcome delivery capability. Hmm. Certain customers are interested along with that uh, with telehealth. And certain hmm. customers like you know, want uh, more diagnostics beyond what is available off the shelf in the market, right? And certain customers have more requirements around, let's say, uh, reducing the total cost of solution and, and down to, that, to, to a level which they are comfortable with. So 
as a business, we have to provide a complete solution. Uh, our lesson was that we cannot just sell technology and then expect that somebody like you know, would figure out the whole solution. Uh, in India or any developing country, the customers are not uh, looking at technology. They're looking at a pain point and how best that pain point can be addressed by a solution. So that's the approach that we have taken in our business so far. Very interesting. Very interesting. And and all these technologies are now, are they IPable? Are they something that, uh, you know? Yeah, so uh, we have filed four patents on this. Uh, we have also filed very some interesting. Okay. on our platform and uh, we have published papers. So our Diet AI for Android a class one device, we have done appropriate, uh, I mentioned the study to you, we published that in a journal and we have deployed this mm -hmm. to multiple customers. And then our blood vision, urine and sputum AI for Android a class two devices. Uh, we have done phase one and phase two testing published results. We have received government of India approval for use as a screening. Uh, device and uh, we have started uh, double blind phase three clinical trials in Lucknow. And the intent is to file for FDA patent notification uh, in summer of this year so that we can sell this like more broadly. And who, who would be your usual customers? Like who are you in your current pool? Uh, I know NGOs, uh, NGOs and, and, and certain corporates are there, but like what's your usual average customer like? And what, what is so, their. So yeah, largest chunk of our customers are employers and there at okay. employer, it's either an employee health scenario and or a, a corporate CSR scenario, uh, right? And typically the pain point which they're looking at is uh, they want a single throat to choke uh, for tier one, tier two, tier three and rural. Um, uh, while we provide service in tier one and tier two, where we really differentiate ourselves even against big guys like Oak Heart and Apollo Hospitals is in tier three rural, where we have one of the large, like, no, uh, best coverages currently in India. Um, in 15 plus states. We pretty much cover every state except east of Assam. Our last state on the northeastern side is like eastern side is Assam. Um, and uh, tier thin rural is where we have like, you know, the best coverage, one of the best coverages currently. So that's the initial impetus for many of these customers, you know, whether they are pharmaceutical companies or health insurance companies or employers or like, you know, NGOs or local government. But do these people have to, I mean, do these uh, employers have to deploy specialized people of their own or do you provide those people as well? We provide the full Lecna solution. Um, so in most of the cases, the solution goes and the technology goes hand in hand with the health outcome delivery. And they don't care what technology we use, whether it's our proprietary technology or something else, right? For example, in case of Indian oil, their motivation is uh, to reduce the accident rates for their drivers. Now, th that's all they want, right? Now, it's up to us to figure out the technology to use, how best to reduce the cost. Uh, should I deploy an ophthalmologist in a given area? Can I even find an ophthalmologist in a given area? Or should I use like optometrist with like, you know, nurses and uh, our AI, right? All that is our decision. Um, they have their budgets, they have their objectives, and they measure us based upon the metrics. Very, okay. Huh. And so currently you said you have over a hundred B2B installations at this point? Yes. And how many people do, do does this, uh, these hundred uh, installations service currently? No, so we have more than a hundred B2B customers. In terms of installations, our installations are more than 225 to 230 installations at this point across like you know, India, where at each point we either have a dedicated techno team or we have a mix of um, uh, dedicated or contract based staff, depending upon how many working days we have in a given area. And then um, um, many of these, some, some of the customers are just pure technology licensees and others are using a mix of techno technology uh, licensing as well as health outcome delivery. Interesting. And and how do you, what's the, I guess, what are the price ranges? What are the, how much does it cost for a corporate to set up a, a clinic? Uh, sure. So uh, if say it's the complete like you know, health outcome delivery, our price points start from 10,000 rupees uh, per day for up to 75 patients, which includes consult, uh, basic uh, uh, diagnostics and meds as part of that, clinic meds as part of that. And then the price goes up from there. Uh, so if, for example, vision, then the price is like a little bit more. If it's additionally, like, mm. you know, let's say cardiometabolic, a little bit more. If it's uh, dental or whatever, the, the price varies from there. But the entry point is generally uh, 10,000 rupees for up to 75 patients, everything included in that. And then if it's a pure pay, and 10,000 uh, rupees a month uh, per day, per day for per up day. to 75 patients. Yeah. And then um, if it is a software only deal, uh, there we, uh, the pricing starts from 5,000 rupees per clinic per month. Uh, which includes patient data management analytics telehealth infrastructure if it is additionally uh, video uh, consults on top of that and that is another additional 10 rupees to like 20 rupees uh, per consult and then the ai modules are built up from that point so each AI module has additional pricing on top of that uh, but the starting point is so essentially you, you you think of yourself as a platform a service provider or a product product uh, uh, you know product company 
So far, we have been a technology-enabled services business uh, where uh, this platform can do, it's a hybrid platform, uh, right? And uh, But going forward in the next three years, our roadmap is to turn it from a technology-enabled services business to a technology-led business. And we are doing appropriate like, you know, transformations in the company at various levels uh, for that to happen. It's a very interesting question from Rohit Nagpal. I'll just take it up. Uh, he says, what is the percentage of accuracy of the AI-based healthcare tests? And maybe sure, you could also so, talk about because all these different different uh, tests you're doing, right? So maybe exactly. from that aspect. So the accuracy depends upon the module. Uh, so our diet AI is 96% accurate um, as evaluated by a panel of dietitians. Um, our blood AI, our sputum AI is 81% um, accurate and I can get into sensitivity and specificity. But if you look up, uh, we have published our paper, uh, like you no know, journal papers on this. And so you get, you can get into exact specificity and sensitivity on that. But 81% is our accuracy on the sputum uh, AI for tuberculosis. Then on um, blood, if it comes to RBC and WBC counts, our accuracy is around um, um, 80% on the cell counts. And if it is, uh, let's say, um, iron deficiency anemia, the accuracy is more into 88% to 90% range. If it is urine, uh, the accuracy generally varies from 85 to 92%, depending upon which medical conditions we're talking about. Um, for diabetic retinopathy, the accuracy is around 90 to 95%. So it depends Actually, upon- Actually, how, how does that compare to maybe maybe what, what would be available in a city, like just, just as a means of comparison? So uh, we position this as a screening technology. Um, so if, say, mm. you were, let, let's talk about tuberculosis, for example. If, say, you mm. were looking at molecular testing, uh, whether it's TrueNet or like, you know, um, something else, um, then that is almost 98 to 99% accurate, right? Uh, but that is a confirmatory test. It cannot be done at scale. Um, and so uh, we typically benchmark this against, say, the same stuff being done by technician, right? And so then getting to 81% accuracy where everything is tracked, everything is documented, it's actually pretty good accuracy for a screen technology. And and then in case somebody has a much more serious condition, do you then refer them to the city or like uh, to a larger hospital? How does that work? All of the above. So uh, typically, okay. uh, if it's a primary, uh, if the issue can be handled at primary healthcare, typically our health outcome uh, delivery teams hand handle themselves. Um, if um, let's say it requires secondary care or tertiary care, that's when we refer them to the nearest like in a hospital. Now, depending upon the area in which the care is delivered. Um, the nearest hospital might be, let's say, uh, nearest uh, uh, government, like in a hospital, uh, which might be in a tier three area, right? Or if the service is being done in an urban slum uh, or in a regular corporate, then it might be a tier one to tier two hospital, right? So we have different uh, contracts, different such uh, escalation points, and different metrics on when something gets like escalated. And I mean, th then I want to ask you the really critical question now. So you sit out of Georgia. And here you have all your clinics and uh, all this, uh, all this, uh, you know, plethora of customers coming in uh, on a daily basis across 230 locations in in India. Uh, how does it? How do you manage all of that? So great question. So first of all, uh, I have a very good management team, which is uh, bulk of that is based in Lucknow in uh, Uttar Pradesh, and uh, they have been doing an excellent job of uh, managing the business like you know, locally in India. Um, but uh, I myself spend a month every quarter in India, including during COVID. So during COVID, I've so far done around four trips. Um, and so that wow. helps like, you know, uh, have feet on the ground, talk to customers. What was customers. the experience like cross-border during COVID? Uh, believe it or not, I actually liked it because the alternate seats in the planes are empty. Uh, the airports <laughs> are semi-empty and uh, the ticket price actually, when I did my trip, uh, I think in uh, June timeframe, the ticket price for US India round trip was $640, right? For a regular wow. ticket, which was like $1,300, right? <laughs> so I would say it was a great time to travel. Um, and since then, um, both sides of the governments have added more uh, uh, protocols. So now you have to get PCR tests like you know, done when getting mm. to India and also when getting back to the US now. Uh, so I would say overall, it was not a bad experience um, uh, after the initial like you know uh, uh, stuff. Uh, but I would say also another thing which helped um, just for everybody else who is listening out there, uh, something which helps you actually have your parent entity in the US is that it is easier to move money in and out of the company. If uh, because of the financial like, no regulations, right? Um, India does not have full convertibility. Um, and so there are more restrictions in how the funds can be deployed. And also right now there are a lot of restrictions and say, especially grant money 
if some of you are like trying to work uh, in the non-profit space or even like social business um there's a lot of grand dollars available uh, but getting those grand dollars to indian entity is a bigger like you know question and just because of the rules and regulations right now right um so i would say having a us entity uh, or us parent actually helps a lot from that perspective also there's a lot of business development which can happen in the us which cannot happen uh, typically in an indian scenario so we did for example our pilots in southern africa now to do that business development in india even if you are in mumbai or delhi is a very difficult proposition right but it's much easier in a situation like in say atlanta in the us uh, right it was also easier to get early stage money uh, at least for us uh, in the impact space um, in the us like no market uh, at that point there were fewer impact like no funders in the indian market especially as um, our funding needs like you no know, grew and were like no more varied so it definitely helped us um were we held back just like everything there's a trade off right so there were several investors out of india who said like no they would want the parent company in india um and so obviously like we could not go ahead with those investors or they would not go ahead with us um and then this question kept coming up that how are you managing something like this setting out of the us um and uh, so far it's been like it's worked out quite well for us we have raised more money than some of our peers in the impact space in healthcare um and we have executed better than most of our peers like in this space actually you started at a time when i mean healthcare was not sexy in india right yeah. i mean you you've been in the space now coming on almost 5 years uh and and i know when you started you had a lot of trouble raising money maybe even convincing people right because you again you were somebody sitting in the us you've not really been in india for 10 15 years so how did you convince that first set of customers to even take your solution because you know for them it's it's still about 3 lakh rupees a month right that they have to uh, commit to you to commit to you for so how did you get that first set of customers to to back your uh, uh, technology Uh, believe it or not getting the customers was not the problem uh, but in a b2b since you have invested uh, in b2b companies you might be aware that is a sales cycle there's a there's the payment cycle involved right often time the very payment true. cycle is 30 very to true. 90 days in our case it is 30 to 90 days depending on the type of the deal the size of the customer and so on so getting that working capital for the payment cycle was a bigger headache than getting the customers because of the problem we were addressing getting the customers was the easy part right but uh, financing that was the difficult part um so let me talk about that because again that might be of uh, 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 it's a very it's a very critical question many people don't realize that working with big companies it you yes you can do lots of billing but yes. there's a huge difference between what's what's bill revenue and what is book revenue yes right and and uh, you know so, and until you have book revenue there's no, no way to pay expenses and you're paying it out of you know your venture cap so yeah, please i would love to understand how that works absolutely for the, for the let's talk about some of the pain points of uh, how what are some of the roadblocks so for example only recently has uh, invoice based financing become like you know available in india or like you know become more uh, uh, at least options are available now uh, prior to that at least prior to covid there were very few options for uh, invoice based financing right so uh, and then if you go to the banks yes you can get good interest rates but the first thing the government uh, the bank would ask you is do you have collateral if you don't have collateral mm. Uh, then the size of the like line of credit or like you know whatever you're trying to get from them is pretty small um or yeah. totally absent and i know that the government has said in india that they provide these uh, uh, collateral free loans through banks uh, at uh, for up to a, a, a limit of 1 cr uh, through a startup like you know 2 cr now yeah 2 cr now right believe it or not we have done the paper with several banks uh, when the rubber <laughs> hits the road uh, it is really hard to get a collateral free loan they say yes it's a scheme they say yes they have a lot of non performing npas right in their on the balance sheet and so even though there is a scheme they themselves would not like you know make uh, the the collateral free loan uh, so end of the day even after you get term sheets and i'm talking about not just like the public sector uh, like you no know, banks i'm also talking about some of the well known names in india you know, on the private sector side right who are venture debt or other like you no know, type of funds even they they would initially say okay collateral fee is fine uh, yes you have market customers everything is good but when they have to write that initial first check it comes down to that okay we need some like you know security here or we need some like you know guarantee here right uh, and that's just the fact of life and you just have to work with that but you know you also ran a business in the us right sas mob uh, and and i mean i can talk from personal experience of running a business in the in the us and running one in india but i would love to hear from your perspective like how different has it been to run a business in the us then come to india and then try to run a business in india like what was the what are the 
like uh, maybe the three major major differences that you find uh, well the first thing is so for example let's talk about seva mas example itself uh, so we were able to get a line of credit from kiva for 50000 dollars mm. no questions asked right and then we repaid the line of credit obviously from uh, the uh, follow on funds um then we were able to get for example from my bank wells fargo a line of credit for $40000 no questions asked no collateral sure. nothing emory university uh, same they gave us line of credit which are not tapped so far $40000 right so very easy to raise less a line of credit or invoice based financing um then we got our initial invest seed investment from village capital um and they got redemption at the next round which was led by adap capital um and uh, it was very easy to get that early investment um like not as much like uh, believe it or not in 2014 15 i did try to like you know get investment from a lot of impact investors in india the cycles were really long very tedious very small checks um and so while you hear all these startups like getting um, million here million there and stuff uh, in the impact yeah, bil- space billions we, now <laughs> yeah in the impact space we talk about $50000 we talk about $100000 we talk about $250000 right and while a normal like no cycle let's say for commercial like no investment in the ai space can easily be a couple of million dollars at like you no know, the dd cycle of let's say 3 3 months to 6 months in case of impact space you will spend 9 months to 12 months for $50000 to $100000 right and even then you don't know what's going to happen even if you have everything lined up all the right answers all the right documents and everything so that's just the fact of life and so it was easier to raise money in the impact space uh, from the us uh, investors i would say that was the biggest difference early on um now i think there are more options available for impact investment in india and also there was one lesson which we learned which is to um tweak our business model from a purely impact model to a um a model which was also attracted to commercial investors mm-hmm. right and so we are still making that transformation we are not like you know completely there yet but our last round was led by a regular commercial ai investor uh, early stage ai investor ai coin um and so i would say uh, that sort of helping us like you know raise more funds i think it's very important at this point to also explain what impact investing is because i have made some impact investments and a couple of them have actually gone on to do extremely well one of them is almost a unicorn now uh and and it was i, I when i invested i had no thought i didn't even think it was going to become anything so massive uh, as 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 it has become because i think they eventually went from impact to actually a while they're creating impact for millions of people across the world this company called tala out of out of the us out of la in fact uh but what i realized is that you know they went because they had a strong business case they've also been able to attract like you said a, a whole plethora of investors besides just the impact investors itself so for the for the benefit of some of the people that may be impact entrepreneurs today what is impact on entrepreneurship is it is it like charity is it running on grants or, or what's the whole uh, concept behind impact investing no oh, so sorry, impact investing is uh, is uh, not grant or charity based investment uh, or mm-hmm. sorry uh, uh, business model um, you are doing a for profit social enterprise but your target audience typically happens to be an underserved population that underserved population might be underserved because of whether they are bop um what of the pyramid or they might be low income or they might have a religious like, because of religion or ethnicity or whatever it might be right there's certain factor which makes that population underserved that's number one uh, then um, the impact investor is measuring it not just on regular commercial metrics like your uh, uh, your revenue and like you know uh, unit economics or so on they're also measuring you on the impact metrics so for example in our mm. case um it's not enough to just do cons- consults Uh, we actually have to prove are those consults resulting in some measurable health outcomes right so for mm-hmm. example in our case um, uh, we have reduced uh, in different interventions primary care cost by 50% we have improved uh, malnutrition uh, by 15% up to 50% 15% in uh, different lecna like, groups we have uh, improved vision issues uh, by 25% um, in different lecna like, groups uh, and so on and so forth so uh, is those impact metrics which we have to measure which we have to then report also as part of like you know, the business model um, and that's what the impact investor is typically looking at um, then it may be a convertible note it may be a, a preferred equity investment um, it might also be recently more of impact bonds happening uh, where it might be a debt instrument but then there is an impact metric tied to it and so if you deliver on that impact metric then um, your interest rate might be waived off or something like that oh very interesting and i think i think that's that's uh... very uh, important point you just made that impact investing does assume that you will return the money back 
right? They may, they may not take a bet on the return, but they definitely, definitely expect the principal back, if not uh, if not any return at all. So I think it's a very, very interesting thing called the impact bond. I'm going to read up, read up on that. Uh, so right now, I think uh, SevaMob is available, obviously, in multiple uh, cities, uh, 15, 15 states in India. How many countries are you available in? Currently, two countries directly. So in, um, uh, in India uh, and then in the US, in the state of Georgia. And then uh, we have done pilots to franchisee in, the, uh, in Southern Africa, uh, primarily South Africa. Uh, we also have a franchisee for Central America, but we've not done any deployments in, uh, in Central America yet. Um, we do have coverage in Botswana, Lesotho, and South Africa. And so now I'll talk, I want to talk a little bit about your fundraising uh, activity that you've had so far. I think you uh, you raised your first round from, like you said, Village Cap Investments, right? Village Cap. And uh, what was what was your pitch, right, to to such an investor? You know, like it was very very early. It's 2012 is when you raised the money. Uh, and you were t talking about sitting in Georgia and building all this technology and servicing all these millions of people in India. And 2012, mind you, India did not even have 50 million uh, internet subscribers. We have 730 million today. Uh, but at that, but at that time, uh, like, what was your pitch? What were you, what were you telling these uh, village cap guys that they invested? So village capital has a very interesting model, which is based upon peer investing. And uh, so they have, they select a cohort. The cohort has around 10 to 15, like you know, companies in it. And then the companies vote each week on which company should like receive the investment, um, right? At the end of it, they make investment to two, um, two of the companies from that cohort. Uh, so that's how we got an initial um, $50,000 where we had to convince our peers that we were an investable business uh, and the business made sense and the business was could deliver impact. Um, very interesting. Wow. And our next round was led by ADAP Capital. Um, we have been very blessed so far that our investors have been very aligned uh, with uh, SaverMob and our roadmap and so far what we have done. Um, some of the other investors, uh, entrepreneurs have not been so, uh, I would say, uh, lucky or fortunate as we have been. So that round included ADAP Capital, Impact Assets um, and Rianta Capital. And then uh, we did another round in uh, October 2015. And that round was led by HNI called Scott Satterwhite out of uh, Georgia and other participants for Impact Assets. Then our last round was led by AI Coin and other participants for Sorensen Impact um, and uh, also one HNI. Uh, so all of these have been very aligned with our roadmap and very aligned with our business model. Um, and they've been very instrumental in giving us the right connections because getting an investment is not just about the dollars. It's actually also about the network that they introduced like you know, us to. And so we've been very uh, like you know, uh, lucky so far. All of our investors have been very like aligned that way with us. It's very interesting. You got money from AI Coin, known for obviously making a lot of AI investments. Is actually a commercial investor, not really an impact investor. Uh, but I also read a comment where you said that technology, a technology-only solution, isn't going to get us anywhere. What did you mean by that? In a developing country, technology only does not solve any pain point. Uh, you typically have to look at the complete solution. So even if you look at guys like Flipkart, it's not like they just as they built out their like no platform. It's not that they just like, okay, here's a cool website where you could order products. They had to figure out the distribution. They had to figure out the delivery and like, you know, uh, post everything, right? So in the same way, somebody like us in the healthcare space, if you just provide a technology, technology is dime a dozen in the healthcare space. What we have to True. provide is an actual health outcome at the end of the day. If you cannot deliver that health outcome or any type of outcome uh, to, a, to a typical like, you know, customer and who their payer is or who our product sponsor is, uh, it's not going to go anywhere. We can have all the best technology that like, now we can. Ayushman Bharat scheme does it really help, or does it does it uh, does it actually become a comp competition? Now that you know you most of your rural uh, Indian population can go to a hospital and not worry about paying for any treatment up to five lakhs. Does that become like an impediment, or is that is that a uh, you know? complimentary for you for what you guys are doing. so for us it's complimentary because as an entrepreneur you have to choose your sweet spot right a lot mm. of that ayushman bharat payments is for secondary care and we deliberately decided to like you know focus on primary care whether that is from a technology perspective or from like you know the health outcome delivery perspective right so there is no direct competition uh, there and then because of that we all automatically have somewhere where we can refer the patient to even if it's a bop patient right they still have that question of five lakhs Prior to that Ayushman Bharat 5 lakhs, there was already a government scheme. And the only thing was instead of 5 lakhs, um, that uh, RGBSI policy had a like you know a co cover of 1 lakh to 2 lakhs, uh, right? And you could like you know, go still. 
So the government rebranded that scheme, increased the like you know, uh, cushion um, or the, the coverage on that to five lakhs, and uh, um, many more hospitals are accepting that like now. So I would say that has been very complementary uh, to us because our focus is primary healthcare only. Very very interesting, Shani. It's been an amazing conversation, and I think it's just I just have so many questions as back to back that that are coming up. But we're, like you know, we, we're running towards almost towards the end of our time. So I have a couple of questions, maybe more future uh, or crystal gazing at this point. Like, where do you see Seva Mob in the next five years? In okay. the next five years, will be a technology-led business, uh, which is operational in multiple uh, developing as well as developed like no markets across the world. Um, and the, the the pain point, the focus though would always be um, uh, solving this problem of primary healthcare and transforming that like a you know, solution for that for underserved populations, whether that is in developed or developing markets. And do you do you see yourself expanding? In, you know, obviously Africa is a market you're looking at, but do you see yourself getting into maybe the South American or the uh, you know East Asian or the Southeast Asian kind of markets as well? Yeah, so uh, South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Central America, um, and even uh, developed markets like the US are uh, um, are, uh, are markets of interest like to us at this point. Wonderful. So I think what I'm going to do, Shelly, is that we've got just enough time to probably do our rapid fire. So I'm going to end the, the conversation here for now. If anybody has any questions, please feel free, free to ask them in the comment section, and I'll take them at the end of the rapid fire. Uh, Shelly, I'll explain the rules of the rapid fire very quickly. I think rapid fire is, is like I said, we'll, we're going to shoot out about 10 questions to you back to back. Whatever first comes to mind, uh, you just need to answer it. This is the only part of, part of the conversation I've not had with you in the multiple <laughs> lead up conversations uh, to today. Uh, so are you ready for uh, the 10 questions? Sure, let's do it. OK, great. First question is a Peter Thiel question. One thing that you know to be true, but very few people agree with you on it. Uh, very few people think that we can become a very big company with, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, PayPal type like non, uh, scale and like no model. Uh, but I think that we can do that with the right support from the right like you no know, partners. What is the support that you that you would say is is required for you to become a PayPal style uh, large company? Uh, both uh, the funding at a scale where like you know we can grow that like you no know, business to that scale, and the second uh, and most importantly. Uh, the strategic partnerships which can take us there. And any anything specific you're looking for in a strategic partnership? So typically, when we uh, deploy in a new area, we are looking for local partners who have either access to business development or access to accounts or like you know, access to uh, some sources through which our platform can be deployed more quickly in that area. So I would say those type of partnerships, whether those are systemic like you no know, partnerships with guys like uh, Path and Care. Um, or, mm. uh, like right, so those are the ones which would be very instrumental in us getting us to the next level. <coughs> uh, who's your favorite superhero and why? And that's a tough question. I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm not. I, a big, I do. I, do I'm not a big comic. Marvel? Yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> a big comic hero guy. But initially, I used to uh, when I was a kid, I used to do a lot of uh, uh, Tata Chaudhary and uh, Phantom comics okay. and so on. Uh, but I don't have any favorite like my hero. One piece of advice to founders about fundraising, and it's very—it's going to be very interesting from your side because you—you you have a very tough fundraising, uh, you know, uh, ecosystem, right? It's not a very huge ecosystem. Yeah. That, so one advice yeah. is: uh, uh, everybody wants to do good. Uh, a lot of our, like you now, uh, my peers—they want to do good. It is very hard to raise funds if you are totally impact business. Uh, you have to have a viable business model. Uh, so think from day one uh, about a viable commercial business model, and then the impact would automatically like you no know, flow from there. Uh, usually, are you a morning person or a night person? Morning, morning. And uh, let's see, um, what is your typical morning routine like? Uh, get up around five a.m. I do a morning run of three to four miles. That is like you know, very helpful. Do some weights after that, and uh, then I start with my first set of meetings after that. After a short meditation. And what's the last thing you do before you go to sleep? Um, just talk to my team in India. Uh, also watch like you know some clips on YouTube, um, and I read. I, I, I read a lot, so and I am a, a speed reader. So. And according to you, what is one thing investors should bring to the table other than money? Um, 
for each round of investment and the best thing which the investor can do is if they have some contacts lined up for the next round of investment or for mm. a potential exit if the company is not able to deliver on the milestones and i would say um, just going back to the village capital example that was the best thing they did to us so when they did the seed they already had relationship with our next round of uh, uh, next round lead adap capital and so they got okay. the redemption and we got the next round of investment and then we were able to grow the business so anybody who's thinking about investing please like think it about it from that perspective and um hmm. it's very interesting the point you just brought up you know but could you elaborate a little bit more on that um sure so uh, something which differentiates the commercial space with the impact space um, or with hmm. the us market uh, with the indian market is um there are a lot of exit options in the us market right hmm. um if say the company is not growing as fast the exit option is that the company gets acquired by somebody else from somebody's like an investment portfolio right or let's say the investor a um at the next round they already have investor b lined up so the investor b then like you know, gives them redemption um and like you know uh, they get their exit right so the money stays in rotation for the investor right makes sense that is makes i sense. think missing and as a, you probably know this better than i do and understand this better in india that is missing and especially in the impact space uh, right mm. um for the real estate invest impact investor um it is the, the limited the very limited options for when the next round exit like you know and how it would happen right uh, and same way for the company itself and there are very limited options for who might buy them and when especially in the impact space right so that uh, reduces the money in the ecosystem overall uh, if you cannot like you know show the number of successes uh, at different like you know, levels i mean i think that scenario is changing in india i think we're getting more comfortable with mnas but yeah i would still say that yeah india india is also very competitive market there's no space for number 3 4 5 in india it's all about number 1 or 2 right and if you yeah. if you're not number 1 or 2 then you're nobody right in the category and i think that's that's also uh while obviously it's the survival of the fittest kind of a scenario but it also becomes extremely extremely competitive Uh, and there's no space for three, four, five in India. I think. I mean, they can survive, but they're never going to get recall and 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 premium valuation. So yeah, it's a, it, it is a very difficult um, deal. I mean, that I, I think it sort of also bleeds into my next question. That that what what one thing you would like to change about the Indian startup ecosystem? Because you're part of both, so you can obviously see both. So what's one thing you would like to change about the Indian startup ecosystem? Um. the biggest thing would be uh, especially just to for, refer back to your previous question uh, you said the mna is increasing in india yes but in the commercial yeah. space right uh, in mm-hmm. the impact space uh, i mean the the number of options you have like you can count on your like you know uh, one finger right i can see that uh, yeah so regarding the indian startup ecosystem the number one thing is uh, if the government for example says that uh, they are going to provide up to 2 cr of collateral free loans they need to make sure that the downstream um, uh, funders who are actually making that loan are actually making that loan and that is actually collateral free right if they cannot ensure that just setting up hopes um, just like waste the cycles of like the 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 uh, startups um, the second thing is uh, we need more options in india now there are options but we need more options for uh, short term working capital right uh, mm-hmm. because a lot of different businesses whether commercial or impact uh, if we can just solve that short term working capital problem for them they might not even need as much equity uh, like in you know, a capital right uh, and then the entrepreneurs might retain more control in their business if they can figure out that short term working capital option often times they are using the capital for the wrong reason they might use equity Absolutely. for doing that short term working capital like you no know, and that just uh, that that's harmful for everybody it's it's criminal it's criminal waste of capital if you're using venture capital to fund your working capital needs it's a criminal waste of your capital yeah uh, not completely agree with that i think that's a, that's a very profound very important point and i think we should definitely i mean uh definitely needs to be brought up right that 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 the government scheme of this uh, it's called the cgt sme scheme right and it's it it's very few companies at least in my portfolio and i have 85 companies in the portfolio i would probably be able to count on one hand the number of companies who uh, have actually got that money right and the kind of hoops they had to go through to actually get that money right and in um, andro you are investing in the the the, uh, the very good businesses right uh, yeah. you are investing the best of the best so think about all the rest of the smes right think about where they are so true so true it, 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 there are many problems to solve you know but i i think i completely agree with you that on one more point here that uh, 
you know, unfortunately because of the lack of debt options in India. So when I started in the US, much like yourself, uh, after the day, it took me like 24 hours to register a business name. It took me another 24 hours to get the bank account. And it took me another 24 hours from there for the bank to call me and actually offer me an overdraft facility. And I'm talking about in 2009. I started in 2009. I got $150,000 uh, line of credit with uh, with uh, I think I was with I was with Bank of America at the time, and and this is the bank calling me in the middle of a crisis, right? And, and even till date in India, I do not have an unsecured credit card. I don't have an unsecured credit card for corporate purposes, and the government definitely needs to solve this. I think this is it is. I can't even tell you how how difficult it is for founders to actually run businesses when we cannot use. You know, when we don't have any kind of a debt requirement, we can't use credit card. We, you know, we're being forced to use debit cards on corporate accounts, which is, which is again, it's it, it's just fraught with, with problems because there's, you know, there could be lacks of rupees or crores of rupees in the in the current account, and you're using a debit card somewhere, something could happen. And I'm just surprised that the government hasn't done anything. And I'm, while they might be pushing it, the banks are just pushed back. So this is definitely a space ripe for. Uh, and yeah, another example, which is a more recent example, is of COVID, COVID assistance, right? You know how many MSMEs have been impacted by COVID, like negatively impacted by COVID, right? In the US, it took the government like you know, three months from start to, like, of the program to like actual de de deployment of the program to help the small businesses, right? We got two months of like, uh, say, uh, working capital um, initially yep. as loan, and then later the loan was waived off and became a grant, right? In India, I do not know of any similar schemes for the SME sector, right? It, there's been a lot of talk, but I don't know like, of any such actual schemes. There has been a lot of direct payments to, uh, let's say, uh, the BOP uh, uh, mm. consumers, right? There have been a lot of direct payments to other set of like consumers. But guess what? A lot of these migrants who are going, who have lost their jobs or stuff, if we can just provide some type of support to the SMEs, of or all, all of a sudden those migrants will get like you know, their jobs back. Um, uh, or like, yep. you know, part of the jobs back or part of the like you know income back and then the rest of the market would pulled up accordingly along with it yeah i think i think getting them back to work is going to be definitely uh, the problem worth solving yeah. uh, i think i'm going to ask you two last questions and i've got a couple of questions from the audience um i think if you could pick the brain of one question which company do you admire globally hmm. and you can't say tesla <laughs> that's a special like in a category uh i would say companies which have been able to solve a, uh, for example a company like uber or ola right a very regular commercial business model but think about the number of people who have gotten jobs or regular monthly incomes a full-time or part-time as a result of that uh, so they didn't start as impact business but guess what they have had one of the largest like an you know, impacts uh, in the last like you no know, five years great i think i'll i'll ask you the one last question because we are we run out of time uh, shelly but the question i have is from a uh, deep uh, desai deep uh, uh, it's uh, his question is how how should an entrepreneur find angel investors um it involves hard work uh, but uh, i would say definitely if say you are in india and it depends again on which space you are targeting right um, for uh, me, uh, impact space is like you know, what I'm familiar with from angel perspectives. So I would say uh, uh, go to a lot of events like Sankalp um, and events like that. Um, there are a lot of like you know, angel investors who come to those type of events. Um, and uh, also just um, if you have developed something, put your name out there. Do more of these type of podcasts or these type of like you know white papers so that your name like you know, gets out there and you can use the proof points uh, with angel investors. Uh, separately, if say you are in US or other places, um, there are guys like Fundable and like, you know, there's also an option in the US uh, to do crowdfunding. Um, and it is very easy to set up like, you know, your campaigns on those type of platforms. I do not know, Anirudh, I don't know if it's uh, coming up or it's already there in India or not. Uh, but in the you've US. You've got Angel list, you've got Let's Venture in India already. Yeah. Uh, but doing a Red CF uh, campaign or like, you know, uh, uh, doing similar like campaigns in the US market is very easy and getting to the angels through those campaigns, it's like, you know, very easy. So that uh, in India, although although I, th I think we're not there yet because uh, there is a bit of a concern about uh, you know marketing uh, marketing companies online. I think, uh, but but uh, but again, you can go to a less venture or or a angel list 
and you can crowdsource investors uh, from those kind of platforms but that being said thank you so much shelly this has been a great conversation in my like i said the first conversation where i have a cross border entrepreneur uh, someone sitting in the us and and actually someone who's uh, been through something very you know very few of us have which is uh, starting a company in the us running that and then uh, coming to india and starting a company here but, but i think you've taken it one step you know beyond because you've started a, an impact venture in india and that too in rural healthcare so it's uh, it's definitely you know hats off to you i really wish you the best of uh, best of luck the best of uh, you know uh, like i i just i just want all your hard work to pay off is what is all i could say so thank you very much for your time chandi any thanks, any final thoughts thanks for having me on the show uh, no thanks for having me on this show and uh, good luck to all the entrepreneurs who uh, were on this like uh, watching this episode thank you thank you so much thank you everybody see you guys next week on episode 32